0: Good evening. Yes, I heard the same thing you heard. Eric will come and speak to us. And then I sat there, so there you go. (laughs) This evening, we're continuing our discussion of tips uh, to understand the Bible. And so that's where our focus in mind is going to be. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 12. And let's begin by illustrating the need for this. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, if you just read it, and this is going to happen to you with regularity as you read through your Bible, uh, especially is it true in the New Testament, but it'll happen in the Old Testament as well. Notice verse 1 and verse number 2. At that time, Jesus went through grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and to eat it. Uh, But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do that which is not lawful to do on a sabbath and so as you can just see from that very cursory reading right there there is an event that takes place the disciples are going through the fields and they're grabbing some grain as they go and they're eating it and they're keeping on moving and somebody the pharisees look at that and they say hey that's wrong and they approach jesus and say you see that don't you why is context so important why is trying to understand the bible so important note in beginning in verse three note what the lord says but he said to them, have you not read? Have you not read what? There is something to do with this event. Yes. And you should have read it. Not only should you have read it, you should have processed it correctly and then drew the right conclusion about what you read. So he says, have you not read what David did when he became hungry and he, was, and, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. That's one part. So, that's the Lord's answer. Listen, they're walking through the grain fields, eating the grain, and they're going on. In fact, you call it wrong, but you should have read that, 1 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 1 down to about verse number 6, where David is on the run with his men. He comes to the priest. He asks for bread. The priest gives him bread, and you should have read that, and therefore… You would have known that what we're doing is not wrong well that's at least part of the lord's answer but he continues or and gives another example have you not read in the law that on the sabbath the priests in the temple break the sabbath and are innocent but i say unto you that something greater than the temple is here but notice verse 7 but if you had known what this means i desire compassion or sacrifice and not a sacrifice you would have not condemn the innocent and for the son of man is the lord of the Sabbath. That's the Lord's total answer. Remember last week, we talked about how sometimes you just run into an Old Testament reference. There's a few of them here. And the Lord's expectation is that the people He's talking to would have read their Old Testament, would have understood it correctly, and therefore, they would have known that what they were doing was not wrong, and they wouldn't have accused them of error. He expected all of that, and that's in His answer. Context. It is extremely important to know how then to ascertain context, and you do that by asking five questions. Number one, the first question you ask is Who is talking? There are a lot of different things recorded in Scripture, and not all of them are said by God. Not all of them. The Bible records God's words, absolutely, but it also records the words of angels, prophets, false prophets, Satan, godly men, wicked men, and women, and even animals. They talk. At least one does. There is a lot recorded in Scripture. When we read 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, the Bible says, "...all Scripture is inspired of God." That means whatever is written was recorded by the process of inspiration. It's absolutely accurate. What was said was said. That's absolutely right. It does not mean that everyone who spoke was told by God specifically to say what they said. Let me give you an example. After losing her possessions, and ultimately her children, and seeing her husband suffer what must look like the very brink of death, job's wife said do you still retain your integrity curse god and die now nobody can read that and think god told her to say that in fact her own husband didn't think that Job's response to her was you speak as one of the foolish women what shall we receive good at the hand of god and shall we not receive evil and all this job did not sin with his lips She did not get that message from God, but it is certainly recorded accurately. That's what she said. Job said it was foolish. I would certainly agree with that. Nobody should curse God and die. She did say it, though. If you're going to establish context, you must understand who is talking. Number two, the second question you must ask is to whom are they talking? We've already seen the importance of this when we reference the building of the ark, Genesis six thirteen, And God said to Noah, God is going to destroy the world. I have determined to make an end of all flesh, that's Genesis six thirteen. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The very next verse says, make thee an ark of gopher wood. That's God's command to Noah. Well, who's talking? God. To whom is he talking? He's talking to Noah. No other person in history has ever given this command. No other person in history has ever tried to build an ark to save the animals and humanity from a worldwide flood. In fact, God promised there'd never be another worldwide flood. There are lots of things said, some even by God, that have no specific application to anyone living today some of those things are said to the apostles with no specific reference to us look at matthew chapter 10 and notice let's begin reading at verse number 16. matthew chapter 10 and verse number 16. jesus said behold i send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. so be wise as serpents shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and will scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about what or how you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what ye shall say. For it is not you who speak. But it is the Spirit of your Father who is speaking in you. That is a very specific reference to the apostles and what they will do. That kind of thoughts about the Spirit of God speaking through them is repeated by the Lord to the apostles. Turn over to John chapter 14. If you're in John chapter 14 and you have one of those uh, red letter edition Bibles, if you have one of those, you should, the context starts in chapter 13, extends over to chapter 17, and you should just turn the pages and notice how much red you have. There is so much of this one context spoken by our Lord, but it's spoken to the apostles. They are in the upper room there in chapter 13, and this is that scene where they're going to observe the Passover, and he is going to wash their feet, and then he's going to prepare them for his departure. But hold on to the words of Matthew chapter 10 that we just read, or and, and, and verse number 16 following, and notice what he says here. In John chapter 14 and verse 25, he says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but— the helper with the, which is the holy spirit or who is the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name he will grab the next phrase he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things i said to you there's not a person on the planet who could take that path and say yeah he was talking to me no When they bring you before the council, don't even think about what you're going to say because it won't be you speaking. Take no thought because it won't be you speaking. It'll be the spirit of my father speaking through you. Here he says, when I leave, he's going to come and he's going to guide you into all truth. And he's going to bring back to your remembrance everything I said. The context continues. Look at chapter 16, continues all the way through this section, 13, 14, 15, 16. In chapter 16 and verse number 13, he says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. When you're reading the Bible, the Bible flows one book into another. The theme of which we spoke a few weeks ago continues. And what typically happens is we sometimes stop, and we just tend to grab a passage here and grab a passage here, and we kind of step out of the context. That mystery of which we spoke continues. And as it continues, the thing that's been said will build upon themselves. And so, here is our Lord saying to the apostles, I'm leaving, and I will send the Holy Spirit. And when He comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will bring back to your remembrance those things, everything. He will do that. So, what happens then after the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord? He rises from the dead, and He appears to the apostles. They resume the conversation. Go over to the book of Acts and notice chapter 1. Sometimes it is the case—while you're turning, I will say this—sometimes it is the case that Christ will move within a conversation from the apostles specifically to all Christians generally. That does happen. And what that requires is certainly a certain amount of vigilance and diligence on our part to know which is which. Acts chapter 1, after he rises from the dead, beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says, the first account I composed, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Notice verse number 2, up until or until the day which he was taken up to heaven after that. He, by the Holy Spirit, gave an order to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these, or to whom he also presented himself alive after suffering by many infallible proofs, appearing to them over forty days, a period of forty days, and speaking to them about things concerning to the kingdom of God. He gathered them together. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait, for the Father had promised for, the, for what the Father had promised, which he said, you've heard of me. You've heard about this. Where'd you hear that, John? John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16. You heard about this, Matthew 10, 16 to 22. I told you this. Verse number 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they were asking Him, saying, Lord, is that this time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? So he said, them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father had fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the uttermost ends of the earth friends, that's the same context. That's the same discussion. What happens next is they watch him ascend up into heaven, which is what he said he's going to do. I'm leaving John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He said in John 14, I will not leave you orphans. I will send the comforter. He will come to you. That's what happens. Acts chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. He ascends. Beginning in Acts chapter 12, down to verse number 15, they go back to Jerusalem. In verse number 15, the Bible says, At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, and gathering of about 120 persons were gathered together. So we have about 120 people. And if people miss the context, if they don't understand, this goes back. John 13, 14, 15, 16, what he's already said. Matthew 10, 16, 21, what he's already promised them. They will conclude That the events that follow happen to the 120, and therefore happen to every Christian thereafter. But that's not at all the context. No, there is 120 people gathered. And if you were to continue to read Acts chapter 1, what you will find is beginning of verse number 16, Peter and the other apostles began to discuss what we're going to do about Judas. He has left his office. There is an empty office in the apostleship, and it needs to be fulfilled. And so, they began to go through the process of saying, here's how we're going to select a new apostle. He had to be with us from the beginning. He had to be with us from the baptism of John all the way through the the life and, and ministry of Christ, up until the day he was resurrected. And he had to see the resurrected Christ. That's the criteria. And those who fit that criteria are two individuals. And so, as you read to the end of Acts chapter 1, notice verse number 26. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. But don't worry about the number, just keep reading. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they—who's the they? The nearest antecedent is 26, and the nearest antecedent is the apostles. In fact, it's the 11 to whom Matthias was added. It's the same they the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven, or to them. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound of rushing mighty wind, filled all the houses they were sitting. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as fire, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in tongues. Well, who's doing that? Well, if you just keep reading the text, you will first of all run into the people's reaction to what they're hearing— and the people's reaction is down in, in chapter 2 and verse number 6. When this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each of one of them was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were all amazed and silent, saying, what are not all these which speak Galileans? That's the reaction. In fact, then what's listed is all of the nations that are there. We get over to verse 13, and some among the group said— These men are full of new wine. They're drunk. Peter's response to that is no. But notice verse number 14. Who's speaking? The Bible says, but Peter standing with the 11. They were only hearing 12 voices. They weren't hearing 120 people speak. They were hearing 12. Peter stood with the 11 and Peter said, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. Who have they been hearing? They've been hearing those who are speaking in tongues. Who's speaking in tongues? Well, I'll keep going backward. Those who are speaking in tongues are those upon whom the Holy Spirit has fallen. They're speaking in tongues, and they hear them speak in tongues. And Peter says, no, these men are not drunk. There were women in the 120. Peter says, these men are not drunk. There's only 12 people speaking. No, that's the context. It goes all the way back. In fact… In chapter 2 and verse 32, Peter says, this Jesus God's raised up again to which we are all witnesses. But that was the requirement for being an apostle. You had to be a witness. That's in chapter 1, 19 to 26. But it's not only that you had to be an apostle in order to be a witness. You had to be an apostle. That's exactly what Jesus said they would be back in chapter 1 and verse 8 but you will receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Who is the witnesses? The apostles. Matthias was added to them. This is the way context works. Who is talking? To whom are they talking? Grab a passage and try to understand it by applying these first two things. Who's talking? To whom are they talking? Brings us to number three. What did they say? That's the third question. Well, that one, that one seems obvious. I'll accept that. But a whole lot of conversations about the Bible happen without a Bible. It's just people talking. And they say things like, I know it's in there somewhere. I'm sorry, that won't do. In there somewhere, won't do. People talk about the Bible, and the Bible is often misquoted. Words are left out. Every word is important, and you can't leave out words. You can't change the tenses of words. You can't add to words that are singular. You can't make them plural. Jesus said, I will build my church, not churches. You can't just go around adding words. No, when you're trying to understand the Bible, you need a Bible open. And when you're trying to understand the Bible, you need to read the Bible, and that carefully. The words matter. You've heard probably things like cleanliness is next to godliness, not in the Bible. You may have heard robbing Peter to pay Paul, not in the Bible. But more specifically, you may have heard something like just say the sinner's prayer, or accept Jesus as your personal Savior, or let the Lord into your heart. You're saved by faith only, or you're saved by grace only, or you can't fall from grace. People might be surprised to learn those things are not in the Bible. But you wouldn't only be surprised by what's not in the Bible, some people might be surprised by what is in the Bible. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 4, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. No, saved by grace only is not in the Bible. You can't fall from grace is not in the Bible. What, what is in the Bible is you are fallen from grace. Now, that actually is in the Bible, but it's not the only thing. James chapter 2 and verse 24, the Bible says, You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Now, faith only is in the Bible, but it has not by faith only right before it. Now, that's actually important. In order to understand the Bible, we have to know what the Bible says. Let me give you another example. I was growing up, I would hear things like, well, now, you know, God doesn't hear sinners' prayers. And then uh, the reference would be John 9 and verse 31. You have your Bible turned to the book of John in chapter 9, and let's study that for just a moment. If you'll read John 9:31, one of the things you'll find very quickly is the word prayer is not in the verse. So the verse doesn't say, we know that God does not hear sinners' prayers. It's not what the verse says. What the verse says is, is, we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does His will, he hears him. Somebody will say, well, Eric, that's the same thing. No, it's not the same thing. Now, I'm not telling you that God does hear and answer sinners' prayers. not what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you is that verse doesn't say that. That's what I'm telling you. And the third question is, what does it say? That's the question. But let's apply the first three steps. Who's talking? To whom are they talking? What do they say? Let's apply what we talked about last week. Let's start with the immediate and the remote context. Well, the immediate context would be John nine thirty-one. What's the remote context? Well, at least go back to John chapter 9 and verse number 1. What would we find? It would set the stage. Who's talking? He passed by. He saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? He was born blind. Jesus answered, neither this man nor sin nor his parents, but that so that the works of God should be displayed in him. Boy, that's the context. That's what the setting is. When you read that phrase in John chapter 9, that's rather a concluding. You're near the end of the chapter. There's a lot of events that have transpired to get to that point in the text. And in fact, there are two people in this chapter referred to as sinners. One of them is being discussed. The two people are the man that was born blind. John chapter 9 and verse number 3, the apostles ask, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Apparently, the belief was if you had a physical malady, you must have sinned to get it. That's not much different from Job's thoughts or Job's friend's thoughts about his condition. It seems to be pervasive, even to the time of our Lord, where the man was born blind, will somebody sin? We just don't know who. Was it this man or his parents? Imagine a baby sinning in the womb in order to be made blind. It's preposterous, but such is the question. To which the Lord says, This man's not a sinner nor his parents that he was born blind, but the works of God may be manifested in him. That's why he was born blind. But he is the one, at least one, being referred to as a sinner. He's referred to that way again in verse 34. The Jews say to that man, they answered and said to him, You were born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us, so they put him out. Well, if the man who was born blind but now sees was called the sinner, who else? actually, it was Jesus. Jesus is the one they're referring to. Jesus is the one he's referring to when he says, we know God does not hear sinners. That man is talking about Jesus. Now, why is he saying that of Jesus? Go back to chapter 9 and verse 24. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Who is this man? Jesus. The Pharisees are talking to the blind man and they're telling him, now that you see, that's great, but give that glory to God, not that man, because that man is a sinner. That's the discussion. They continue. So he said, so they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already. And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Do you? They reviled him and said, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, Jesus, not we know not. We do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing. You do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. It's the blind man that continues to talk in verse 31, and here's what he says. We know. You know it, and I know it. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing, is a worker of God, God will hear him. He does his will. God will hear him. So, what's actually the discussion? It's not prayer. It's not prayer at all. The actual discussion is God's approval. The evidence of that is miracles. The question on the table in John 9 is, is Jesus from God, or is Jesus a sinner? That's the debate, backwards and forwards. What's the evidence and that which would determine which way you believed about that? Miracles. Go back a few verses. Listen to Jesus in John chapter 9, and this is how the chapter opens. John chapter 9, when the apostles ask, was this man blind or who, who, who sinned, him or his parents? Jesus answered, it was neither this man that sinned nor his parents. Note the end of verse 3 but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse number four, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, that is what leads into Jesus healing the man. As they proceed to begin to discuss that, The man can now see, and there's this great debate about how did he come to see? That man gives glory to Jesus. He says he did it. They say, give the glory to God. But then they say something else that tips their hand. Notice what they say back up in chapter 9 about verse 28. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Here is their evidence. He says, we know that God has spoken to Moses. We know God approves of Moses. We know that. As for this man, we do not know where he is from. Let me ask a question. Here's what the blind man understood. How did you come to know that God spoke by Moses. How did you know that? You go back to Exodus chapter 4, you remember Moses out at the bush, it's burning, it's not consumed. Eventually God says to Moses, go back to Egypt. And Moses says, they won't believe me. And God says, put your hand in your bosom and take it out. The hand goes in, it comes out leprous. it goes back in, it comes out whole. Why did God do that for Moses? That they may believe that I spoke to you take the rod put it on the ground it becomes a serpent pick it up again it's back to a rod that they may believe that i sent you what is the evidence that god spoke by moses miracles that's the blind man's point now here is an interesting thing he says we know god doesn't hear sinners We know God doesn't work with sinners. We know God doesn't approve of sinners. But now this man has opened my eyes. 9 and verse 25, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. But though I was blind, now I see. The evidence is the same. Moses did miracles, and we believed. This man has done a miracle, and you still don't believe. Ah, this is an interesting thing. No, the context is not prayer. The context is is Jesus from God or is Jesus a sinner? Jesus says that the works of God might be displayed in him. By the time you end this chapter, the people who can see are blind to the truth of Jesus, and the man who was blind can not only see physically, he can now see his Lord. The context is demanded by what the Bible actually says. You can't guess about that. You you can't say, I know it's in this. No, you actually have to. Sometimes people say things that sound good. Doesn't mean they're accurate though. Look back in the book of Job again. In the book of Job, Job makes, I'm I'm going to call it a great statement for lack of calling it anything else. To have the disposition of Job, excuse me, to still maintain your integrity and your faith as he did. um, There's nothing, man, I, I hope I could be the same. But reading what the text says. Job chapter 1 and verse 20. The Bible says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. That's what he did. Verse 21 is what he said. He said, Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is a fantastic statement, but it's just not completely accurate. And the reason it's not completely accurate is because Job was not filled in on the conversation between God and Satan that that takes place from about verse 8 down to verse number 12. And since Job didn't know that God had actually given everything that Job has into Satan's hands, it wasn't actually God that took it. It was Satan that took it. Now, I can't fault Job for not knowing that. And Job certainly knows God gave it, but Christians read this passage, have a tragedy in their life, and then quote Job. No, God's not in the taking business. Now, why would you say that? Because James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, cometh down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow of turning. There is no give and take, not from God. There's just give. God doesn't give to his children and take from them. That's not the way it works at all. The completed revelation is not done. Job's in patriarchy, and Job knows for sure who gave it to him. And to Job, there certainly is no other explanation. But it's not what God did. Job's not the only person who says things like that. Go back to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32 The Bible records an event that is certainly incredible. In verse 24 of this chapter, the Bible says, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the daybreak. Now, if you continue to read that, it'll tell us about that event, and it's rather incredible. And then verse 30, the Bible says, So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Well, that's clearly what the Bible says, but then you would have a problem with that because Jesus clearly says, no man has ever seen God. Well, Jesus is right. What did Jacob see in Hosea, or Hosea chapter 12? And if you'll read the first four verses with reference to Jacob, the prophet will say, he took his brother by the heel. Jacob did that. And then it will say, he wrestled with an angel. That's what he did. Jacob says, I've seen God face to face. No man has seen God, John one eighteen, The son has declared him. My point is simply this. The third question has got to be who is talking. Yes, number one, to whom are they talking? Absolutely. But what did they say? You've got to go and actually read the words and keep them within the context. And the context sometimes includes the totality of the Bible. Number four, when did they say it? Since there are three periods of law recorded in Scripture, when things are said become very important. Specific things said from Adam to Moses don't apply to people from Moses to Christ and from Christ to, from Moses to, spoken through Moses, from Christ to us. That, that just, does the way it works. Uh, from Adam to Moses, fathers offer sacrifices. Genesis 4one to 4, Job 1 and verse number 5. But when the law was given on Sinai, that changed. You could only offer the priests and that from the tribe of Levi— no one else could offer with God's approval. Others tried and they were rejected. If one was not from this tribe, you could not offer sacrifices acceptable to God. In Numbers 3, 1 to 10. Under the law of Christ, however, every Christian is a priest. 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9, and so we all have the privilege to offer up spiritual sacrifices holy and acceptable to God. Thus the when things are said becomes extremely important. Christ couldn't even be a priest under the law of Moses. In order for our Lord to be our high priest, he had to change the law. That's Hebrews 7 and 8. One more quick thought before we leave this one, and that would be this. It matters when a thing is said, even on this side of the cross or on this side of the cross. Is what's said before the cross or after the cross it makes a difference? When is it said? One example, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 and verse 43, a passage you probably know well. Now, you may not know exactly the reference, but you know it very well. Because there, Jesus said to the person with him on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. That's what Jesus said. Luke 23, I'm sorry, Luke 23, 43. Jesus said to him, Verily, I say unto you today, you shall be with me in paradise. And for many people, they built an entire doctrine around the thought that the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and therefore I don't have to be baptized. That's, a, that's not at all the case. When this was said becomes important. Christ has not died, and so Christ on earth can forgive sins. That's, that's why he does that. But it matters that after the cross of Christ, coincidentally drive a peg real quick and say two or three things about the thief, Uh, nobody can prove he wasn't baptized. Not a person on the planet can prove with any accuracy that this man was not baptized. What do you mean by that? Well, Matthew chapter 3 records the baptism of John, and the Bible says all Jerusalem came out to him Well, why would you think this man could have been in that number? Well, he could have been in that number because, hey, he's a Jew. But secondly, he knows Christ has a kingdom. His question to the Lord, his statement is, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How does he know this man has a kingdom? Listen, I'm only telling you that because I can't prove he was. But nobody can prove he wasn't. Ultimately, not the point. The point is, Christ is alive on earth, and as such, He can forgive sins. But if you stand on this side of the cross, and then you take the event of the cross, and you get on this side where He has risen, He's been died, He's buried, and He's risen, not even Jesus can forgive sins now. Not personally. Well, what do you mean? You don't have any evidence of that. Yeah, sure I do, because in Acts chapter 9, Jesus Himself— appeared to Saul of Tarsus Acts chapter 9 it's Jesus talking to Saul and Jesus says go into the city wait Lord why don't you just do it because Mark 16 15 and 16 says go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and Romans 1:16 and 17 says the gospel is God's power to save and so not even Jesus will forgive sins now because when a thing is said is important in Scripture. Go into the city, it'll be told you what you must do. And when he gets there, the Lord has also appeared to Ananias to tell him, now go to him. And when Ananias gets to him, he says, Brother Saul, why are you tarrying? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Because when a thing is said is exceedingly important in establishing the context. I must know, who is talking, to whom are they talking, what did they say, when did they say it, and finally, why did they say it? This final question is necessary to ask in answering the question to help us understand the Bible. There are two families, and only two families to my knowledge in all of human history who has ever been told to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Only two. Adam and Eve, when there were two people, and Noah, when there was eight Nobody else has ever been told that. And so, should you have children? I don't know. That's you and your wife's call or you and your husband's call, as y'all see fit. Wonderful. Our children are a blessing of the Lord and so forth and so on. Great to have. I'm not saying anything about that, but I do know this. If you choose to do that, you're not fulfilling the command of God. That's not to you. He told people to do that twice. You aren't one of those people. Other examples would include when the author gives us the reason he wrote, John 20, 30, and 31, Paul telling Timothy how to behave in the church, 1 Timothy 3, 14, and 15, the Hebrew writer getting to the end of his book and says, this is a word of exhortation, 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, 26, 5, 13, John says, these things have I written to you, then he tells him why he wrote it. Jude in verse number 3 says, I was going to write about one thing, but it's needful for me to write unto you that you earnestly contend for the faith. Well, that's why he wrote it. Wrong conclusions and wrong teaching and wrong application is inevitably a breach of context. God's Word doesn't change, and if we take the Bible literally unless something in the context demands a figurative explanation, we are well on our way. But people often don't like this approach. And so they change God's Word, they ignore God's Word, they make God's Word traditions of the church rather than the inspired Word of God. And so they take away from God's Word, they twist God's Word, Galatians 1, 6 to 9. They add to, they take away from, Paul says, there's some that trouble you, distort and twist and pervert. Peter said they do the same thing to Paul's writing. Ask yourself this, what areas does the world and some within the church disagree with Scripture? And why do they do that? Suppose we start talking about the church. How many are there? Oh, it wouldn't be hard if we went to the context. If we established context, it wouldn't be hard. In fact, everybody on the planet would have to conclude one thing. There's one. Because that's all Jesus said he would build. Uh, You could not like the Lord's church, but I guarantee you this, these 66 books won't ever give you two. It won't do that. There's just one. What about worship, organization of the church? Every time somebody wants to realign the organization of the Lord's church, and every time somebody wants to re-include re-in- something else, now there are now supposedly women elders in the Lord's church. Let me just say this. There are not women elders in the Lord's church. There are congregations of individuals who now say that they have women elders in the Lord's church, but they are not because God didn't organize this church that way. When people disagree about the roles of men, why do we do that? It's pretty clear in here. If you just keep it in its context, it just will tell you, won't let you do anything else. How do we get to the plan of salvation? It never says the things you say. The completion of Scripture. There's no more revelation. In order to get your beliefs in, you got to get this out. And so there's this great emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Why do you suppose that people emphasize the Holy Spirit so, so, so much in religion? Because by emphasizing the Holy Spirit, we get to do this. The Holy Spirit has told me, and now I can tell you, but he didn't tell you. He told me. Guess what you don't know? You won't know it until I tell it. But now if he starts telling every single one of us, that's how you can have five, six, seven thousand different religious groups. And just one book teaching the same thing over and over and over again. If you don't understand the Bible, apply these things. Where we've been so far, five things to know. God is Draw a conclusion about that and commit to it. God spoke, God spoke in words, God spoke in known language, God spoke in propositional language. Five important keys to remember. The Bible is a book, needs to be read. The Bible has a theme as a beginning, middle, and an end. The Bible is not intend to be understood. God didn't intend to trick us. He revealed it so we would know the Bible must be read with the intent of understanding. The Bible is to be taken literally as something in the context, demands a figurative explanation. If you understand context, who's talking? To whom are they talking? What did they say? When did they say it and why did they say it? And we are well on our way to understanding God's Word. Not to a Christian tonight, become one. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Change your heart, change your mind. Bible calls of repentance. Confess the name of Jesus. Be immersed in water. Let Him save you. God will save you through Christ. You matter to God so much so He gave Jesus to die for you. Hope, you will, hope He will matter to you so you can give your life to Him. If you are His child, friends, it is your responsibility, your charge. To read, to study, meditate upon God's Word, and I need you to understand you can do it. This is not intended for a few scholarly people off in a room somewhere who go in there and, and, and kick up a bunch of dust from old books and then come out and, and tell you what that's not the way it's supposed to work. Every individual Christian can do the work to understand God's Word. We simply must do that. You can, you can, and you must. Begin with reading, move to studying, and then meditating. If we can help you with that, that's why you have elders. That's why you have preachers. That's why you have deacons. That's why you have faithful members and Bible school teachers. Get help if you need to. But do not live your life in the Lord and not understand your Father's Word. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.